Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter, and I'm joined by the authors of Inventing the Future, uh, Nick Cernacek, Alex Williams, more importantly, at N underscore Cernacek, at... Lemon Bloody Cola. That's right. Unfortunately, we're not joined in the studio today by Ash Sarka. Would have been a wonderful addition to the programme. Nonetheless, I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic. We'll be discussing what I've already called the most important book of 2015, South Verso Books. Is, has it been released yet? Because you can purchase it online, but is it out actually in stores yet? Or? It's, uh, yeah, it's been seen in, the in UK bookshops. Yeah. Uh, in the US, it's out in, um, I think, three weeks yeah. in the US. And in three weeks. And it was, yeah, I think yeah. it was formally released what, on the 21st of October, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So we're we'll t- talking about all the big areas around the book. It's such an important book, prominent book. Events left, right, and centre. Try and make one if you can. There was one, where was it last night? Uh, Carol, Carol Fletcher, Fletcher Gallery. Carol Fletcher Gallery. Yeah, yeah. And there was one, the pre... The, the Houseman's. One, the right before. prior to that, right? Yeah. Packed the rafters. Yeah, we're doing one at Foils on Tuesday at 7pm. People can't get enough of it, it seems. Yeah. Almost as important, but not as important as this fantastic book, is Navarra 10K. Guess what? We've done it. We reached 10K. Thank you to everybody who donated and made a subscription over the course of the last four weeks. We're all part of making a new media for different politics, and... All that money is really going to help the project step up in the next few months and over the course of the coming year. So thank you again. I think we've got something like £1,400 subscriptions a month. That's really going to help us do some great content, pay our contributors, pay the expenses of people that otherwise couldn't have come on the program. The 10 grand is made very clear on the video at support.navaramedia.com. will help us buy kits. will help us through our own offline events, Navara IRL. And um, yeah. Really, really important. So I can't stress that enough. Thank you. Again, you don't have to worry about not making the deadline. However, if you still want to make a subscription or make a donation, support.navaramedia.com will be staying up from here on in. So if you want to make a financial contribution of any kind, either as a one-off payment or something more substantial, more ongoing, you can still go there tomorrow, next week, next month. It'll be there. It's not going anywhere. Right. Back to today. Inventing the future post-capitalism and a world without work. Gents, I'm going to start with this question. You open the book with a sentence which so many of us asked, not just on the left. Where did the future go? Now, can you unpack that question a bit? Why does it start your book? And what do you think it tells us about the political, economic and intellectual status quo? Nick, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from a number of different sources. Uh, I think amongst the West in particular is this general sort of structure of feeling, uh, which if it does imagine the future, is it's always a sort of dystopian future. Uh, so imagination of sort of climate change wreaking havoc around the world um, or some sort of massive financial collapse, which just leaves economies um, on the ground. Uh, so there's that just sort of general structure of, of feeling that exists. Uh, and you see it sort of expressed in people like Mark Fisher's work on capitalist realism, this idea that actually capitalism is the sort of, you know, entire parameters uh, of our existence and there's nothing beyond it. Um, So there's that sort of general cultural feeling, which I think is expressed not just in a sort of academic and activist sort of cultures, but more broadly. Um, But amongst the sort of academic and uh, activist left, you do also have the sort of a critical, an uptake of sort of critical um, 
um, approach towards anything. Can you remember uh, the Simon, uh, Simon Critchley quote? There's this incredible Simon Critchley quote about... Oh, dear. How, yeah, he's, about, he's returned, has he? Yeah, he has, unfortunately, Aaron. Yeah, uh, it was something about... It was, uh, well, it's basically, I mean, the future for him is uh, entirely a capitalist sort of... Yeah, the future uh, is capitalist. Yeah. So you've got to reject the future. Well, his next book deal, right? Yeah. That's the future for Simon Critchley. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is the case, I think. Real, uh, real charlatan. Anyway, Nick. Yeah, so I mean, Critchley's a good example <laughs> We'll go example back to Critchley, don't worry. Uh, go on. But Bifo as well is another example. So after the future and the sort of... Um, depressive take on exactly where we stand and the possibilities for constructing something different. Uh, and I think, you know, this book that we wrote um, sort of stems from this moment of 2008 when, you know, things did collapse, things were on the verge, the entire globe was on the verge of just completely falling apart. And it really did seem like a moment where a new future could come about. And this is sort of what Occupy grasped onto and what the Arab Spring grasped onto uh, was this idea that actually the world could change and be something different. What's happened, of course, since then is a return of neoliberalism in, in, in even more strengthened sort of form. Uh, and with the Arab Spring, you've got sort of, you know, if it's not civil war, it's a military dictatorship. It's all these sorts of problems. So a sort of moment of where a future did seem possible has completely disappeared again. Alex? Yeah, I think there's kind of – the way I think about it is there's kind of two dimensions to the, the kind of this um, – this loss of the future. And um, there's been a lot of people talking about this in a number of senses. You've, you've had kind of like a few years ago sort of pop books about like where, where you know, we were promised jetpacks. Where are our jetpacks and, and our food pills? There is a real sense that the kind of um, what you might call the sort of radical modern, modernistic future that, that was kind of uh, seemingly culturally promised in some sense in, I don't know, the sort of post-war, let's say, uh, after the arrival of after the arrival of neoliberalism, it kind of gets sidelined or at least kind of transitions into a different, a different kind of future. So we're no longer be living in space and we're no longer going to have um, you know, radically transformed kind of ways of relating to each other and the world. Instead, we're going to have uh, smart gadgets that are kind of incredibly well-upgraded versions of stuff we already had 50 years ago. So there's, there's this kind of phenomenon. In terms of the left itself, uh, there's, there's kind of two reasons why the left has kind of abandoned the future. One of these reasons is purely practical. It's the sense that, uh, you know, the practical capacity to determine what is going to happen in all likelihood, um, the kind of balance of power. I mean, in reality, uh, neoliberal forces, agents, actors, fellow travellers, these are the ones who actually have this capacity right now, um, at least to some extent. The other side of it is a kind of normative thing. We ought to give up the future, but the future is kind of inherently corrupted. It's associated with various kind of um, modernist discourses that you know we we do good to abandon in some sense, but this sort of to our perspective means that a kind of a key hegemonic battleground, literally the future, as a kind of practical uh, ability to affect the future, but also as a kind of as a signifier, as part of our kind of social imagination, has kind of been given up, and you can kind of see this with uh, in the kind of Corbynist turn within the Labour Party that. The idea that um, a figure like Corbyn could be anything other than a throwback. So maybe he is in some sense a throwback. I mean, I think this is up for debate. I think mm. this is, we're still you know, waiting to see what, what the Corbynist moment um, produces. But I think like, this, this idea that the kind of um, mainstream media, even the left mainstream media like The Guardian, are addicted to for various reasons is this idea that you know, there's the modernist wing of the party. The modernist wing of the party is only, is only modernist from, in the sense of a specific set of discussions and debates in the 1990s. Okay, so here's a question for you, Alex. 
we hear it all the time. It's often a very unquestioned category. The moderniser, modernising, modernisation, the modernisation of the NHS. Alan yep. Milburn, for instance, yep. as the arch-moderniser. What's the relationship between that idea of modernity, modernising, and the future? Would you say that that as a category actually signifies the complete absence of a future? It's a kind yeah. of discrete, insulated temporality which has no past and no future. Uh, it merely situates in a kind of capitalist, realist present. Is that a fair assessment? That's a, absolutely a fair assessment. I mean, I think, it, I think it, does, it does have a future, but what the future is, there's, there's a kind of generic trajectory for most societies in the world today, which is that the, the future and therefore what modernisation is a kind of process will consist of, it's just going to be more neoliberal measures. So it's going to be uh, more privatisation, more contracting out. Uh, you know, your job is going to get worse and worse. Um, you may well lose your job. And even if you don't, you may well wish that you did. This is what, if you tell people your workplace is about to be modernised, nobody thinks, great. Everybody thinks, oh shit, we're, we're in real trouble now. Nick, do you think that's a dynamic category though, modernising? Do you think something like Liz Kendall, when she's saying modernising in five years' time, might be meaning something a little bit different? Or is this a really stagnant insipid term does it just mean privatisation does it just mean outsourcing is it not subject to change even within the kind of constraints of their own thinking I think for somebody like Liz Kendall it is very highly constrained but I think it's precisely a signifier which is worth struggling over Uh, and this is you know a sort of classic counter-hegemonic idea is to struggle over these sorts of signifiers Um, so part of it is a matter of uh, struggling over things like modernity struggling over things like the future struggling over what the meaning of work is uh, and this is precisely what our book tries to, to argue for, is to say that this should become uh, a primary battleground of the future uh, of the left. Um, so, yeah, I think it is it's highly um, mutable, but it's a matter of you know taking it back from the people who solidified it into a neoliberal idea. So here's a quote from the book. First one I'm going to give out on the show. Neoliberalism, and I quote, has failed. Social democracy is impossible. And only an alternative vision can bring about universal prosperity and emancipation. Articulating and achieving this better world is the fundamental task of the left today. So my question then, out of that little extract, pithy and as useful as it is, is did the future die with social democracy? And when was that? Nick? That's a good question. Um, I don't think the future died with social democracy, but... Or with the demise of social democracy? With the demise... um, I don't think so, no. I think it was reconfigured into a way that most of us would find quite... Um, uh, we would be opposed to uh, sort of the neoliberal version. But I don't think the future itself died. It just became um, reconfigured in this way. I think what's happened now is that actually it turns out neoliberalism is massively stagnant in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, any sort of dynamism, uh, whether it be economic, technological, social, or anything like that. Uh, The only thing it happens to be quite good at is sort of uprooting um, traditional cultures and destroying them. I mean, I think this is a point that we're we're kind of, very eager to stress is the fact that there's a kind of there's a lot of arguments on the left that want to critique neoliberalism or, or neoliberal capitalism or capitalism via a kind of moral ethical kind of argument that it produces kind of horrifying effects uh, I mean we'd completely agree with that there's something kind of strangely unpersuasive to a lot of people about those arguments I think it's partly because neoliberalism always already builds in the fact that it's producing these bad effects but it simply says those bad effects are a necessary consequence of what overall is going to be a good process in some, in some kind of generic trickle-down effect, maybe. So we think it's much more interesting to try and critique it on the things that it's claiming to be the best at. It's claiming to be the best at in terms of, um, you know, achieving kind of high degrees of innovation, of, di- you know, a kind of social dynamism, in terms of, you know, creating, like, uh, you know, entirely new forms of, like, technology, and, uh, you know, and being sort of radically, uh, you know, socially inclusive and all this kind of stuff. 
In fact, all of that's just a, a load of rubbish. So when Marx says that capitalism is a revolutionising force and that it constantly upgrades and transforms the means of production, and as a consequence of that, uh, so society, the social superstructure which sits upon the base, is he wrong? Because the future you're talking about is imminent within the mode of capitalism we currently live under, neoliberalism, where the state has an increasingly diminished role in terms of innovation, investment. That seems at odds really with the kind of capitalism that Marx talks about because he says this is a uniquely revolutionising force. You're saying it isn't, Nick. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think neoliberalism is quite different from the sort of capitalism that Marx was looking at in this regards. Uh, so it's sort of interesting because we talk about, you know, our first demand in the book is a demand for full automation. And part of that is to say, well, it is a matter of uh, a sort of economic necessity that it comes about, that the means of production are being revolutionised, robots taking jobs. But at the same time, if you actually look at the statistics, so productivity statistics globally, and productivity is essentially a measure of how many goods can be produced by X amount of people. Now, the idea would be that if automation was occurring, if this revolutionizing uh, of the means of production was occurring, productivity statistics should be through the roof. Instead, what we've seen is the exact opposite. We've seen a global slowdown in productivity. And this suggests that actually um, neoliberalism isn't revolutionizing the means of production. Now, there's all sorts of reasons for why this may be the case. It may be the case that, as some people have suggested, uh, the sort of easy gains of technology are gone. Uh, it may also be the case, as a more sort of Marxist analysis would suggest, there's just not any profitable investments for capitalism. Uh, and in that case, well, they have no reason to sort of uh, invest in the means of production. But the counter for that, then, from an ideologue of neoliberalism, from the status quo, would say, well, actually, contemporary measures for productivity are just in inadequate. They're insufficient for dealing with the kind of... the the productive bulge surge that comes out of the digital environment. Um, that seems a pretty fair assessment, though. Or are you saying, actually, the technologies we're using at the moment are just really not contributing anything to productivity whatsoever? Because when you're on your iPhone and you're organising a party, uh, you know, we got you guys here in the studio. You, you guys are in a book for Verso, right? The book, as much as it pains me to say it, is a commodity. It's been created for exchange value. We organised you coming on here through phones, computers, all this stuff would have been a hell of a lot more capital-intensive, labour-intensive 10, 20, 30 years ago. That doesn't show up, though, in productivity statistics, does it? So is that a little bit disingenuous in terms of what you're saying about what we have right now and the absence of increase in productivity? Uh, no, 100% agree with that. I think the measure of productivity is there's mistakes and problems with it. That being said, I, I'm also sort of hesitant to just suggest that well, because those statistics are wrong, we can just make up any idea of what productivity actually is. Uh, I think that's highly problematic as well. And you get into sort of, you know, fringe lunatic territory about shadow statistics and things like this. So I'm, I'm hesitant to agree fully with that. I think productivity does mismeasure things. It doesn't count into account um, a lot of what we do every day because it doesn't show up in those sorts of statistics. But I do think there is a real problem here. And I think part of the problem is actually... Uh, we just have a global surplus of cheap labor. And this is why, for, for the average capitalist, it makes more sense to hyper-exploit people than it does to invest in new means of production. And this is, I think, one of the major hurdles to actually you know, revolutionizing the means of production. So for neoliberalism, it's been a matter of reducing the power of workers rather than investing in the means of production. Mm. Alex? I don't think I have anything to add there. Apart from the fact that it's, it's, it's widely acknowledged by economists that Measuring productivity is something which they, you know, they, they have various proxies for. There's things like the solo residual, um, but it's, uh, yeah, they, it's basically completely unknown as to whether there is this, as to whether exactly as you suggested, there is this big gap, and we we don't know how to measure the kind of productivity that IT 
has enabled, mm. or whether it's just it actually has not been the, given us these kinds of gains that we've seen before. So the first big concept in your book is this idea of folk politics. Wonderful concept. I think it really captures a lot about the, the politics and the activism that I've personally seen, and that's only anecdotal, over the course of the last five years. You say that folk politics more or less explains the failures of movements over the last 20 years, here again I quote, despite the desires of millions for a better world, the effects of these movements prove minimal. Can you say a little bit about what folk politics is and why is it so limited as a uh, political uh, modality for those who want to change the world, want to transform it for the better? Why is it not a revolutionary politics, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two sort of qualifications that need to be made um, from the outset. And one is to say, well, folk politics doesn't name any sort of explicit set of ideas uh, in the sense that nobody would subscribe themselves to folk politics. It's not really an ideology. It's not an ideology. It's not equivalent to, say, anarchism or horizontalism. Instead, horizontalism, anarchism, localism, they all partake in folk politics to a certain degree. And it's a sort of, as we argue in the book, it's a sort of... So common- what is folk politics? An explanation? If, well, it's it's, not, it's, if it's not an ideology, what is it? It's a common set of assumptions that often go sort of uncritically accepted by much of the radical left today. So it's the kind of mental furniture of a lot of yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a set, it's a set of kind of implicit commitments that even if, even if you know, they might not be kind of explicitly named or kind of consciously uh, considered, that effectively drive certain elements. So it's a tendency within quite a lot of the kind of what you might call the uh, what some analysts call the newest social movements. Yeah. So this is all the kind of social and political uh, movements since kind of the auto-globalisation right. stuff in the late 1990s. NSMs, they're called in the literature. I think yeah. Graeber called them the new anarchists in an yeah. article for the New Left Review quite a long time ago, now about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So some of this mental furniture, some of these commitments, conceptions um, in folk politics, what are they? Can you just uh, yeah, break I mean, a few? The overall sort of uh, aspect of folk politics is, well, it privileges immediacy as a solution to any sort of political problem. Uh, So we see this in everyday ways, um, sort of environmental localism and food localism being, I think, the sort of almost purest examples of it. But it gets played in a number of different ways. Uh, So one is spatial immediacy. So again, this has to do with localism, a turn towards uh, the idea that the problems of, say, climate change or global capitalism can be fixed by doing local currencies, local banking, local food, 100-mile diet, these sorts of things. You also at the same time have a temporal immediacy. So this is a sort of rejection of long-term strategic thinking. It's an emphasis on spontaneity, on the eruption of um, political will. Uh, And then you have sort of conceptual immediacy, which is a return to, you know, valorizing affect over um, reason, valorizing the personal over the structural, uh, the concrete over the abstract. And I think we can sort of see how these get played out in different ways through a number of different, you know, existing movements. So those are the binaries. Dish the dirt. What kinds of movements do you think really seem to exhibit a tendency towards folk politics, Alex? Okay, so the, 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 the classic one and the one that really... I mean, like initially when we came up with the, the term, we were thinking about stuff like, um, kind of stuff like Stop the War, for example where you're really looking for, you know, and maybe Stop the War is not the best example because later on you kind of get Occupy and this is, you know, while we're sort of starting, starting to write the book. And we're really excited by Occupy, partly because we kind of, we want, we want them to succeed in whatever their kind of putative anti-capitalist or anti-financial capitalist project was, but also because we're excited to see, is this just going to be folk politics again? And it turned out that actually this was almost the, the, the very acme in a sense. So, I mean, we, we go into this in great detail in the, in, in the book, trying to be as generous as possible, because obviously we were immensely excited by Occupy as a movement. Um, but if you look at the kind of some of the reasons why 
it wasn't able to generalize it wasn't able to kind of snowball into something bigger they're all related to to these these kinds of issues that we describe as, as folk political tendencies um and you know even if it comes down to the question of kind of objective power so why were they ultimately crushed well because um you know the police were able to clear the clear the camps and they were overly dependent upon particular forms of spatial immediacy well this is you know this raises the question you know rather than just saying well we'll just have to try it again Instead, it raises the question of, well, if we know that this is what's going to happen, if we know that the state has empirically more physical force, and it all, it all, you know, in almost every circumstance it will. Mm. Especially, if you're, if, especially if you subscribe to kind of lef- left liberationist kind of uh, right. uh, politics, right? You're not interested in building your own army or your own Right, exactly, exactly, right, yeah, precisely. So then this just raises the question of, well, are you setting yourselves up to fail? Are you just mm. setting yourselves up to, you know, take that beating? Uh, and we need to think about how we can avoid taking the beating. This is, I, I guess this is the kind of the starting point, in a sense, for the book. Where does folk politics come from? If it's so pervasive across left movements across not only Britain, Australia, but actually bits of Europe, some of the third world, sorry, the global south rather, um, where does it come from? Why is it a thing? And does it develop uniquely after 1989? Nick? Uh, I think it largely stems actually from the sort of uh, problems and stagnation of the left in the, the 70s and the 60s. Um, in the global late north? 60s. Yeah, in the global north right. in particular, yeah, yeah. Um, And I mean, this is part of the argument that we try to make in the book is to say, well, folk politics as a set of common sense assumptions stems from a particular historical moment where actually it functioned very, very well. And it was a sort of necessary response to the sort of problems of the left uh, and the movements by the right in the 1970s and early 80s. Uh, And there's a sort of, you know, good historical reason why it's come about. The problem is, is then been transposed all these other sort of situations uh, that it just doesn't function in. Mm. And it's become sort of highly limiting. Uh, neoliberalism has managed to reroute around it. Mm. Uh, you know, the famous example is stop the war and the fact that uh, the biggest protests in human history and George Bush just sort of smiles on and says, yes, this is what we want to bring to Iraq. Leo Tolstoy quote, you know, why change the world when you can change yourself, right? Is that the quintessential folk politics? It's certainly, a, it's certainly a strong element. I mean, it's this kind of stuff that kind of reaches its kind of apogee with what gets called lifestyle anarchism, right? Um, so it's this idea that kind of because the world is so difficult to change, that there is this, you know, that at the very least you can change you can change your subjectivity. And this is kind of a part and parcel of a whole trajectory of thinking that arises on both the activist and theoretical left after everybody realises that kind of, you know, Stalinism is a horrifically pernicious dead end. And But the way we kind of think of it is that this has ended up being a kind of uh, uh, a kind of massive binary overcorrection. So what it's done is it said, well, this politics was dubious for a whole variety of, of, of reasons. We agree with that. But then the result, the result of this has been, well, we're just going to invert all of these. So if the problem is uh, with sort of the, your classic Stalinist uh, Communist Party form of politics is the fact, you know, it's incredibly authoritarian. Uh, it's, you know, you know, uses vicious violence, blah, 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 blah. And it, it has all of these features. Instead, we're just going to invert them. So instead, it's going to be completely unplanned, complete, attempt to be completely, you know, have all of the uh, function as a, as a kind of structural um, and subjective inversion of this kind of position. But actually, this is, you know, this, this in itself is not proven to be necessarily that successful. So there's the kind of hypothesis that comes out of Jodie Dean. Uh, you know, I've not got many kind words about Jodie. She stood up the show once. <laughs> and also it precedes her in a whole bunch of literature. To what extent do you think some of these claims within folk politics, the temporality they ascribe to, the immediacy, um, the spontaneity, as they would call it, to what extent do you think this reflects a different kind of capitalism that's more contingent upon social networks, inherently less hierarchical, more horizontal, more flat, do you think there's an element of folk politics where it's actually yeah. mirroring 
the organisational ideological aspects, yeah. not just of neoliberalism, but also the digital environment? Well, they both kind of emerged out, I think, at the same kind of time. So the, the what um, Arrighi and others will call anti-systemic movements, right, that kind of start developing in the late 60s. Mm. And they view this as kind of like a global phenomenon. They see it in the Cultural Revolution in China, student movements in Japan, as well as the um, anti-war uh, hippies and uh, student movements in uh, Europe and America. And But it's the same, there's, there's kind of, I don't think it's necessarily the case that people are, are, are purely, you know, trying to replicate the organisational structures they already see in terms of technology and the um I'm the, just saying, to what extent you think it represents... I mean, yeah. would, would, I mean, clearly folk politics has arisen in the last 40 years. Yeah. Is it a response not only to ideology and political limits, but also technology? Or oh, is it that... def definitely is, yeah. I mean, so the, the, this idea that, you know, so this, this kind of structural fig figuration of the network is kind of... Uh, functions in a kind of... Uh, a kind of sense to orientate thought both in terms of, you know, you see this with kind of people like Boltanski and Chiapello, their analysis of the kind of management mm. shifts uh, in terms of management discourse in the 1990s. You also see it in terms of, you know, the whole way that kind of tech companies are organized internally, kind of agile management and all this kind of stuff. But you also, yeah, I mean, it, and it is kind of dependent partly on abstract ideas that are also partly patterns for kind of the, the, the physical structure of technology today. And this is stuff that the the left simultaneously embraces, I think. And Nick, Alex just said that, you know, it's quintessentially kind of uh, um, evident in the politics, the behaviours of lifestyle anarchism. seems also to me that it's an intrinsic part of ethical consumption discourses, which obviously are, you know, inextricable from liberalism, 21st century liberalism. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. Folk no, politics pervasive, not only with, within kind of very self-reflected activism, but come, kind of the far more widespread, ultimately, practice of ethical consumption around what we eat, how we travel and so on, is that fair? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and this is uh, a partly what we try to show as well, is that folk politics is not just a problem of the activist left, but also a problem of, um, yeah, I mean, ethical consumers. is a much more popular sort of discourse and set of assumptions than just the activist left. It's a fundamental conception of the political right, arguably the kind of hegemonic one for those who are, you know, politically involved, but, you know, big, sorry, small p political right, people that buy free range eggs and so on. Right, but it's yeah. also it's because it's, I mean, the figuration of the localism. Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating seeing this over the last kind of decade. How it's emerged as a kind of trans-political ideology, right? So it's people from the f ultra left to the ultra right, and everybody in between yeah. has all you know, people in all of these different positions across this political spectrum have become interested in localism, and and you know maybe it has different meanings for some of these people. I guess if you're a kind of secessionist rightist, it, that means something different than if you're. Uh, I don't know, David Cameron and, and his idea of the big society. But it's certainly it's installed itself as a kind of, you know, the response to any problem, well, we're going to have more localism. Mm. And what precisely does this mean? I mean, mm. we're certainly not rejecting decentralisation. Mm. Um, you know, we, we would view this as absolutely necessary. What's interesting is that the think tank set up, it's kind of a little uh, devil spawn of policy exchange, which is, I'm sure many listeners are aware. I think it was founded by Nick Bowles, who's a relative of Churchill. Uh, think tanks, for what it's worth, very important part of the book. We'll cover them very shortly, their importance in creating the hegemony, the intellectual and ideological hegemony behind neoliberalism and its seeming uh, ubiquity, its seeming uh, our inability to do anything about it. Nick Bowles set up Policy Exchange. I think in 2009, 2010, they set up a little uh, think tank on the side called Localis, which was essentially a nice way of navigating these debates they already have within Policy Exchange and then injecting that other discussion around localization, decentralization, and basically transposing politics from one to the other. Do you think Marx 
understand. Oh, God, the listeners would be like, oh, God, Marks. Three guys <laughs> talking about Marks. My apologies. That wasn't how it was meant to happen. That's how it's panned out. Um, do you think Marks understood the limits of folk politics? Because, you know, in his understanding of the commodity, he says, with the development of the productive forces, contemporaneous with that is an ever-increasing socialization of commodities. So, you know, David Harvey puts it so beautifully. You know, he talks about nice vignette. He talks about so frequently in his lectures. What did you have for breakfast this morning? You know, you had some porridge, some milk, you had some coffee, you had a banana. Now, the labour that's gone into that little uh, meal, it probably involved you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people because of the incredible socialisation of the forces of production as capitalism develops over time. Now, given Marx understood that quality within capitalism, not only uh, distilled within a moment, but over time, as history progresses, as capitalism advances, it will become an even more intense process do you think he understood this idea of folk politics and its limitations i mean are you looking retrospectively now at some of his work and saying oh look this is actually what we're talking about nick yeah i i, I think so i mean because his sorry because his commitments to organizational strategies are fluid right we know he's there's totalitarian tendencies authoritarian tendencies or very left liberal te tendencies clearly you know and a lot of that was response to the phase of the paris commune Nonetheless, he does seem overwhelmingly critical throughout his life of the kinds of politics you guys have isolated as pernicious and counterproductive. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, I think so. I think part of it is just a matter of, well, how do you imagine the sort of post-capitalist future? Or how do you imagine communism? And for Marx, it was very much development of the productive forces to enable um, humans to become free from, uh, free from work, free from wage labor. Uh, this was, I think, the essential sort of component of his vision of communism. And if you sort of accept that as your vision for what communism is, well, that entails a whole set of sort of assumptions about how to get there, what is necessary in order to achieve it, what is necessary in order to sustain that sort of society. And I think to have that sort of, you know, massive level of development of productive forces, um, you need, you, you can't have a sort of folk political mindset. Uh, so I think implicitly and explicitly in certain parts of his work, you can find already uh, the sort of critique that we're trying to, to argue for as well. I think it's also a question about uh, what gets called cognitive mapping, right? So how can we understand the world, not just in the abstract, but literally in terms of our relationship to it? And this is a kind of undercurrent in the book. So we think that like part of what's going to be necessary if we're going to have an ambitious leftist project that's actually going to be able to challenge and supplant neoliberal capitalism is we're going to have to come up with better cognitive maps. I think Navarro Media is doing a really good job in some of its kind of bullet point primers, which kind of, uh, I mean, anybody who's interested in those would be able to immediately grasp some very important facts about the kind of structural features of the political, economic and social world from that. But I think there's a pro the, the, the kind of the problem with Marx, or at least certain elements of Marx, or maybe like the manifesto, is that for all of this kind of the complexity of social relations or certainly the intricateness of them that goes into producing any individual commodity, the tens of thousands of hands it has to pass through before it reaches us, there's still a kind of an idea that what's going to happen due to endogenous economic processes is essentially a social simplification. So the social simplification is simply that the world will increasingly be divided into two classes. And these, you know, the capitalists and the, the proletariat. And the proletariat will be increasingly immiserated, and this will form a kind of uh, the subjective conditions for politicization, which then leads towards the strategy of the takeover of the state, and f from which uh, dictation of the proletariat, etc., etc. And the whole history of kind of the, the the radical left and the left has been about the fact that this did not happen, mm. and this is something that I think still 
certain trajectories on the left today still don't seem to kind of have realised that, that this is the, the fundamental problem. Very small ones there. Fortunately. Well, perhaps, but I think this this question about how you can come up with a leftist politics that is going to be um, amenable to the kind of com- social complexity that is generated by capitalism, and the social complexity is not totally a bad thing either. It has some ver- you know very good aspects, which certainly uh, all of us living in London get to enjoy. Yeah. Well, most of us. Most of us. Um, this is a line here about folk politics and its limits. You call it incapable of scalability, incapable of transforming capitalism. I'll leave it at that. You've just mentioned about um, why didn't you know, revolutionary politics succeed given a historical determinist understanding of capitalism revolution after 1917. And this is something we've talked about on the show so many times. Gramsci explains it really well. Indeed. What's his contribution? It's that of hegemony. Nice segue. You talk about how folk politics is the opposite of counter-hegemony. Given what we've talked about as the limits of a certain conception of politics, and uh, in addition to that, a certain mode of preferable organising, the party form, I suppose, is the best way to put it. What is counter-hegemony, and how does it relate to the fundamental uh, demands and the theoretical framework of your book? Nick? Um. Yeah, I mean, counter-hegemony on the first place is just a scalable sort of project. So it's a matter of, you can think of hegemony at a sort of uh, municipal level, you can think of it at a regional level, a national level, and ultimately at a global level. Uh, The very idea itself scales up very, very nicely. Uh, But the other sort of aspect of hegemony is that, well, it involves a long-term strategy. Uh, So in the book, we set out uh, the Mont Pelerin Society and their sort of construction of neoliberal hegemony as an example of how hegemony functions, how it works. And, you know, for them, it took 40 years, 50 years to sort of construct this world. I think the left needs to be thinking long-term processes. Uh, We're in a situation where the left has very little power, where we're certainly not in any sort of revolutionary moment. Um, The sort of capacity for transformation seems quite minimal. So we need to be thinking long-term. So hegemony enables us to do that. Uh, And it also is scalable. uh, And it also it functions on complex societies. So it, it takes into account the fact that there's all sorts of different interests at play within a society. It's not just the social simplification thesis. And it also doesn't assume, which is what a lot of sort of prefigurative uh, ideas sort of assume, it doesn't assume that people will just agree with you. There's an act of convincing, an act of rational debate with people um, to bring about these sort of change in ideas. Do you think in folk politics that persuasion, political persuasion, is completely dismissed as a necessity in social change? Alex? I mean, uh, I mean, this depends because in a lot of the movements we're talking about, take for example Occupy, massively heterogeneous, like very hard to actually get that there was no kind of doctrinaire agreement. Yeah. Um, but you can certainly say that there's certainly participants and also theorists of these kinds of newest social movements who will argue that actually, you know, persuasion is in some sense a pernicious thing. Yeah, but it the, seems odd sometimes the prefiguration, right? Yeah. Because if you're prefiguring something and something, somebody disagrees with you, then they're the other, they're the enemy. Right. But it, this kind of already seems to seed a lot of... and But, you know, a lot of these movements effectively were relying on persuasion. Even if they are kind of even kind of explicitly or implicitly anti-hegemonic, he- to a certain extent, the fact that you want to convince more people to join you means that you're, even if you don't admit it, you're, you're kind of functionally going to need a kind of hegemonic logic, I think, in a sense. Persuasion, folk politics, is it sometimes overlooked as, as an important kind of element of the toolkit of political change? I, I think it often is. Um... And so there's a number of different instances where sort of folk political thinkers uh, discuss precisely scalability, precisely how to expand a sort of prefigurative space to a much larger space. Uh, And when you 
when this happens, you sort of see a bunch of hand-waving going on. You see sort of discussions about these things just uh, attracting people uh, by their own virtues. Um, people will just spontaneously decide to join this movement. There's never any sense of actually engaging with other people in, in their own terms. Uh, and this sort of gets lost, I think, in a lot of folk political writing. Mm. Interesting. Um, right. So talking about hegemony, counter-hegemony, how did neoliberalism become so hegemonic? What was the infrastructure which undergirds that? Uh, Alex? Okay. So the, the, I mean, the important thing to note about this is just, just the sheer... And this is... Anybody who's read anything in depth, uh, you know, you've read like Morawski or, or similar people on, on this topic... What's really important to note is how, although neoliberalism is, is, you know, compared to the kind of embedded liberalism, social democracy, Keynesianism that went before, is a shift within the framework of capitalism, it's quite a big shift. It's quite a significant shift. It's a shift that um, if you kind of told people in the, I don't know, like the, the 1950s that this was going to happen, they would, they would just laugh. They would, they would just laugh. The, the people involved in it, the kind of the, the real ideologues, um, your Hayek and his fellow travellers, were just viewed as, as cranks. Basically, they were viewed as real extremists. They were viewed as as, um, as extreme, if not more so, than people on the radical left are viewed by the mainstream media today. So it really does bear explanation as to how they were able to manoeuvre themselves into such a position of um, what now, I guess, would be global predominance, really, in terms of setting the global trajectory, the generic trajectory for the entire world. And the answer is basically, well, they realised that, you know, the conditions when they first got started kind of 1940s 1930s well, th- th- these were not good conditions that their ideas were not going to going to prosper at this point so what they did was they created the kind of institutional basis that would mean that they would be able to develop these ideas and they developed what we call a, an ideological infrastructure so this has two components it's it's a system of ideas it's an ideology they develop that so therefore the ideas the plans the projects are there the policy suggestions are all there to roll out when the time is right, but also it's, a, it's literally an infrastructure. It's a set of institutions, think tanks. And these think tanks, they even, what was the name of the think tank that builds other think tanks? Uh, oh, God, that's an amazing one. Atlas Foundation, that's I think. Right, yeah. Atlas Foundation, yes. They even developed, they developed an, infrastructure, uh, an infrastructure of think tanks to seed new think tanks. It was tanks. an incubator. Yeah, Fantastic br- yeah, idea, right? Yeah, it's really, 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 I mean, when you study the neoliberals, you realise that, you know, as much as you might despise their ideas that just strategically they were just incredibly smart and ahead of their time. They discovered a form, a form of institution that was perfect for their politics. So the think tank, it's not original, like the, you know, the Fabian Society on the left. You know, there were think tanks before. It wasn't original to them, but they were able to take it on and it seemed to work very well with their politics as a place that isn't, you know, isn't a corporation, isn't a political party, isn't a social movement, isn't academia, but yeah. can communicate with all of them. Just for what it's worth, my favourite chapter in the book, by the way, I think you're making an outstanding e-book... Uh, maybe Verso could do something about that. I don't know. Put it out maybe for free or for a pound. I think it's a really amazing uh, tutorial, not only on neoliberalism, but also the lessons that we on the left can learn from it over the course of the next decade, two decades. Uh, what is neoliberalism? It's a great podcast I did with Will Davies from Goldsmith not so long ago. Goldsmiths, right? Not so long ago. He's up and with the, the PPE, uh, Politics, Philosophy, Economics degree over there talk about cancer hegemony we need more pps of the left and he's involved with one at goldsmiths this idea however there is one kind of problem with everything you more or less i agree with it right but playing devil's advocate you could say well look neoliberalism required it demanded a revolution of the technocrats it could be an elite driven process in a radical democratic project if we're talking about the abolition of capitalism property race gender borders that can't be an elite driven pro- project surely so uh, 
are there limits then in saying to the people on the left, look, this is the ideological infrastructure which advanced the cause of neoliberalism. We just merely need to model it and imitate it. Is that what you're saying? You have to, I think you have to imitate it at the correct level of abstraction. Right. So you have to say, well, look, the, the neoliberals found an ideal institutional form for them. It, you're right, it's an elite, technocratic politics. So this was right for them. So you, it, and it's also very easy, right? It's also quite easy, ch- yeah. It's very easy to change yeah. the technocratic kind of sediment of a country, yeah. right? It just takes a couple of thousand yeah. people. Yeah, indeed. But I think, so I think the question is, well, what would be the equivalent of that? It's yeah. not necessarily going to be think tanks, I think, because they, you know, there are plenty of think tanks on the left already. They're... They have maybe some marginal influence. Yeah. So it's possibly not the, that's not the correct institutional form. But I think the idea that you're going to create new kinds of institutions that you're then going to spread, even in conditions where um, it initially seems as if these ideas are never going to take off, that's something which I think is relevant. I think, and this is something we go into in the book, is the fact that one of the consequences of rejecting folk politics or thinking it's insufficient, but equally not taking the you know, Jody Dean line of we just need the Leninist party, that's all we need, thinking that both of these are kind of flawed, um, is the idea that... That's wh- the worst book I've ever read, by the way. <laughs> Jodie Dean's book. Isn't that bad? It's the worst book I've ever read. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Um, is the idea that, well, basically, you're going to need a kind of ecology of organisations. And actually, neoliberalism used that. So it had, had the, the, this think tank infrastructure, but it also you know, had a variety of other organisations that these were in communication with, political parties, uh, corporate funders. So the left needs to think in terms of a similar kind of organizational ecology and part of this is because different kinds of organization have different abilities they have different time horizons in which they they can kind of conceive tactically and strategically about about what to do um so i think it's important to think that uh you know some of these things are going to need to happen at a kind of l- much longer term time scale than your kind of horizontalist movements have been familiar with right it needs they, they need to be thinking in terms of you know 50 100 years yeah. but then there also needs to be organizations that are thinking in the in the immediate now and these need to be in communication and to some extent um resonating with one another yeah. i think in order to be successful nick i'll say one other thing that sort of uh we learned from the mont Pelerin society is the flexibility of neoliberalism as an ideology uh, and this often gets cashed out by, you know, the sort of mainstream press and um, the writers as basically, well, neoliberalism doesn't exist. Uh, it means everything to everyone. It doesn't exist, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's astonishing, right? I mean, it's I've unbelievable. Heard, yeah, yeah, I've yeah, heard yeah. this in particular in the last couple of months because obviously it's now got real uh, salience with the public because Corbyn talks about it all the time. Yes. And people like Danny Finkelstein are going, what is it? Well, yeah. go on Google Scholar, mate, and you'll see papers with two, 3,000 citations on there saying neoliberalism. Anyway, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. <laughs> if you're listening, Danny. That's what you have to do, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, there is a, a, one thing I think to take from that, which is that neoliberalism is a very flexible ideology. It gets instantiated in different areas to different degrees in different ways. At the same time, there is a sort of common core to it, which you know gets played out. But its flexibility has allowed it to be taken up in different ways, be adopted by different people, accepted by different people in different ways. And this is partly why it's been so successful. It hasn't been a rigid imposition of a particular ideology. Now, the left can learn from that, I think. The left can say, well, we also need a sort of flexible ideology which responds to different conditions on the ground. It's not a top-down imposition of a particular idea. Instead, it's a set of ideas which can be interacting with ground conditions on the ground. Mm. So it could be very sort of culturally, temporarily, geographically contingent-specific. Excellent. We have just over 15 minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM, Home Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. It's gone incredibly quickly. That may be because of the coffee I had immediately before the show. I don't think so. I think it's gone really quickly. Great show. This is like intellectual amphetamine. 
You know, these are just bullets. Boom, 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 boom. So much to take in. I think we'll have some resources up on the website when this show goes up up there. So this podcast will be live on environmentmedia.com sometime later on this afternoon. I think resources have to go up there. You chaps will obviously instruct me as to what they will be because there's so much further reading necessary in understanding not only this book, but I think these are huge ideas. They're motivating so many people. You know, I spoke to uh, Yanis Varoufakis last week and... Uh, the things he was saying, more or less, you know, they really... Yeah, surprisingly consonant. I right, think. exactly, with your book. And also, I think, to a lesser extent, Paul Mason with his book, Post-Capitalism, there's a lot of space here where people are... I think there's a really interesting space now on the left, to the left of social democracy, which is very fluid. It's very strategically open, very pluralistic, uh, but it's also, I would say, quintessentially left libertarian. Uh, and that's a really interesting, fascinating space. So, yeah, we're going to have lots of resources up with the podcast. Like I say, we've got 15 minutes left, so I suppose we're going to have to change topic very quickly. Uh, back to the title of the book. Why would post-capitalism, for you at least, necessarily be a world without work? Nick? I think this is sort of a, a revival of classic ideas about wage slavery uh, and the idea that actually waged work is a horrible imposition upon our free time uh, and a horrible constraint upon our freedom. Um and I mean, I mentioned this a bit earlier, but if you if you go and read Marx, and it's, it's sort of commonly accepted that uh, he didn't discuss much about communism, he didn't say much about what it would mean. He actually does talk a fair amount about it. When he does talk about it, it's always a freedom from work. It's always the end of wage labor, and it's always the the sort of um, the ability to go and do whatever you want to do. Uh, so I think it's sort of a revival of those classic ideas uh, on one level. The other level is that we sort of see post-capitalism as emerging out of capitalism. Uh, this is sort of classic Marxist thesis as well. But if you look at what's going on within the changes in the means of production today, there is a very vast potential to eliminate a lot of jobs. Uh, and as it's sort of uh, constructed at the moment, this is going to mean a lot of suffering and pain for a lot of people. Now, the left should be mobilizing around this and trying to figure out how can we actually turn this into a liberatory movement rather than another sort of... Uh, uh, an exclusionary movement which just forces millions of people into the surplus population. So this is another thing that we, we're kind of advocating is the fact that if the, if the left needs to begin to take on this kind of counter-hegemonic role, it can't just be a resistance movement. It needs to think about where are things going to be heading in the future. There's a few trajectories that we can kind of consider are definitely happening. So there's, I mean, there's two big ones. The one we talk about a lot in the book, which is the kind of interplay of automation and maybe uh, sort of increasingly coming up on the agenda idea of basic income as a response to that. The other is, of course, climate change. So if the, if the left wants to kind of get ahead, you know, and these, these issues, these dynamics, these trajectories, they can play out in a number of different ways. It's a matter of kind of political contention as to how they will play out. So we need to start thinking, for example, about the way that, you know, is automation going to be this time in, in, in the hands of the capitalists or is it going to be something that we're going to embrace are we going to be the enemies of the machines or the friends of the machines? And this depends on politics. It's not necessarily in the technology itself. Even in terms of something like a universal basic income, uh, you know, this is something which has historically be, been of interest to the kind of more radical thinkers on both the left and the right. So I think like Hayek advocates it as well as you know, mm -hmm. innumerable left, left-wing people. Hugh, over, I mean, over you had years. a letter, I think, in the late 1970s, right, to the US Treasury. Um, it was, uh, I think it was Treasury Secretary, a letter from over 1,000 economists 
backing right. a guaranteed social wage or a basic income. Yeah, that's correct, right? Yeah, there was yeah. a moment in the seventies in the U.S. when it seemed like uh, actually, I mean, two administrations tried to pass a sort of basic income. Uh, and it was widely supported. Uh, and there's a really interesting sort of take upon why it failed. And part of it was because the culture, uh, the discursive understanding of work at that time couldn't slot in people who would be paid a basic income and still working. Uh, it was welfare for people who were working, which just didn't fit in with the cultural mindset at the time, which is why I think if we're going to be discussing anything like a post-work world, we need to also be thinking about the discourse around it and the culture around it. How far have we come? Because I remember the TUC uh, kind of propaganda around 2010. I mean, it sounds to me that we haven't really uh, moved even a single step forward in 30 years in regard to a radical progressive politics being a, a world without work. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something we've been talking about every all our launch events. It's this idea that basically... Uh, Certain point, I, I mean, Nick, you kind of date this to when is it around the Great Depression or yeah, shortly afterwards? Yeah. There's a kind of phase transition within glo- kind of global leftist discourse from demanding, le- you know, uh, more free time, less work, um, to demanding full employment. And the left is kind of um, even today, like the unions. I mean, all of these kind of A to B marches where we're just going to demand jobs, jobs for everybody. I think the kind of idea that maybe this is this is pernicious for a number of reasons, that maybe it's not desirable, maybe it's not even economically possible anymore. Uh, I just think it's not on their not really on their agenda. I think it's a I think it's a real problem that it isn't. I think it's a problem that the kind of the real kind of forces in terms of um, organised left politics on a mass scale, which mm. are still the unions, mm. the fact that they kind of that uh, at least to, you know in the last couple of decades they've, yeah. they've been lacking in imagination on these kind of issues it is a problem i mean marx even in capital he goes back i think it's chapter 15 on the working day uh, right uh, and he talks about how workers will always take the same pay with fewer hours rather than more hours more pay yep. their mm-hmm. priority is working less mm-hmm. uh, which is at odds with what we've seen in terms of structural changes particularly after 2008 2009 in the british labor market particularly in manufacturing Unions were agreeing with bosses and saying, we'll, you know, we'll scale down workers' wages and their hours to mm. make this more, you know, kind of this kind of compromise. Um, so, yeah, like I say, it doesn't really feel like we've moved forward in the last 30 years in terms of this ideology as a necessity, really, for kind of anybody with vaguely communist commitments of a, a world without work. Going back to the sort of counter-hegemony, um, if we're talking about, you know, in quite sort of marketing terms and campaigning terms, who are the cause advocates of a post-work world. Who are they? I mean, do you need celebrities to be saying this? Uh, it can't just be uh, think tanks and, and uh, media insurgents, no matter how fantastic they are, even in, you know, including Navarra Media. Clearly, you're going to need big people in society saying that, look, we need to reimagine our relationship to work. A great place to start would be somebody like uh, Patrick Stewart, right? If we're yeah. talking about Star Trek. Nick. Right, yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. I think uh, the other sort of um, nice aspect of a counter-hegemonic project is that it's a full-spectrum project. So it requires, um, you know, sort of independent media organizations like Novara. It requires the mainstream media uh, uh, institutions. It requires um, celebrities. Uh, but it also requires, you know, the average individual person recognizing and remembering, really just remembering, uh, how terrible work is. Well, clearly, that's where, the political, that's where the political vitality comes from, right? Of course, yeah. it's consonance with the experience of the working class, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's, you know, when people do surveys, um, business, you know, management uh, consultancies do surveys of the working class about how much they enjoy their work. Routinely, every single time, 80, 90% say they hate their job. 
And I think that that sort of political vitality is there to be tapped into. And it's just a matter of sort of reminding people of how terrible work is. But I think at the same time, there's this, it's, it's curious because it's true that a lot of people dislike their jobs, but equally, you also see surveys which say that people find a value in work, even if they hate it. I mean, there's, there's a kind of omnipresent ideology that is, you know, it will be interesting to see whether it can be shifted. I mean, I think, I think it can, but I think it's going to be, a, I think it's going to take a lot of effort. It's, I think it's going to be quite, quite difficult to shift the way that we've all been taught that this is where we're going to find our meaning, even if the work is, right. is, is terrible, is unenjoyable. I mean, given that, you know, the kind of modus operandi, uh, the ideology of work completely undergirds capitalism, like you say, I think really since the Great Depression, especially since 1929, since the 20s, since the 30s, we make history but not under conditions of our own making. It's going to be very tough to sell this, right? If people's sense of purpose, well-being, self is so inherently tied mm. up to wage labour. I mean, is there a, are there particular ways where that can be um, navigated? Nick. Yeah, well, Kathy Weeks is quite good on this. So the sort of changes within the work ethic, and it begins as a sort of transcendent thing with um, you know sort of religious work ethic. Uh, it then gets secularized as a sort of you know imminent goal in itself to get um, greater consumption, greater luxuries, these sorts of things. It then transforms today into a moment of you know our own identity. So work becomes an aspect of our identity. Uh, you know, when you ask somebody what they do for their job, it becomes a matter of asking, who are they? Like, what is their sort of uh, their subject position? Uh, and I think that this is a really big hurdle for sort of getting to a sort of post-work society is that work is so ingrained in our identities, even if we hate work. Uh, and I, I don't think there's any easy way around it, but it is a matter of reminding people it doesn't have to be this way. It's also, um, I mean, I think uh, in one, one point which is very interesting is the fact that today... Even this idea of, you know, like we formerly had of the leisure class, the incredibly wealthy, they used to basically spend their, spend their time, you know, engaged in various, you know, either, you know, pure hedonism or kind of cultural projects or stuff like that. Today, the very, very wealthy have to at least say in the media and stuff that they, you know, wake up at 5 a.m., go to the gym, then they check the markets, then they go for a jog, and then they, they're in, they have to pretend that they're, you know, stuck on a vibe. This shows you how pervasive this ideology is. That even people who presumably don't have to do that, who could be living lives of, of real leisure, feel that they can't. It's true, right? P did it. Yeah. Instagram. He'll have some like Benjamin's exactly. next some dumbbells. Exactly. This uh, guy doesn't have to work ever again. Precisely. So it's, it's there's an idea that just work in itself is a good thing, and that, and that it's kind of it's that it's morally improving. It's a source of identity. One of the ways we're going to be able to shift this though is the fact that that with the rise of of automation, robotics, algorithms. There will maybe there will be a kind of a need to reimagine this on a purely practical level that there may well be less employment. Mm. There's going to be a practical. There's going to be practical drives so, as well so as. So you think that the productive forces changes in technology may determine the ideology? They'll as they'll create an opportunity space, right. uh, and this this opportunity space okay. we need to hegemonise around. We need to make it a good form of automation, good UBI, not a bad one. Universal basic income. Yeah, we've got five minutes left. This is the final question. It's about technology. Um, you talk a great deal about technology and the need to repurpose you know, current technologies towards communist uh, common ends uh, rather than those consistent with capitalism, wage labour, the ideology of work and so on. Given that the technology of neoliberalism are about minor innovations rather than paradigm shifting, it's about a Mac 3 becoming one with you know, a, Mac, a Gillette Quattro, it's one yeah, more razor blade. They added another blade. That's innovation yeah. under late capitalism. Given that, how can you repurpose these technologies? I mean, because there, there's been no breakthrough technologies arguably, since the mid-1960s, the jet engine, the transistor. Um, and I mean, a lot of the technologies that are still, they're still kind of ringing what seem sort of like innovations today, they were all stuff that was developed 
uh, by like the American and British war machines in yeah. World War II. That's that's where a lot of these innovations come from. I think this is very true. And people don't realise. I mean, you know, what people do realise, they just think about it. You know, the jet engine. This is developed, I think, 1942 by the by the Brits. Uh, you know, it's really just a couple of years into the, uh, the Second World War. And this is now still how we move about globally. It's astonishing. This is 70 years ago, yet it's still considered an ultramon technology. So I'll reframe the question. How do we repurpose these technologies, given the technologies of late capitalism aren't particularly new? Nick? Yeah, I think there's a couple of historical examples to sort of look at. Uh, one, which is you know local to the UK, is uh, Lucas Aerospace in the 1970s. So this was uh, an organization which was building military equipment subsidized by the UK government. And what happened was, uh, effectively, there was going to be massive layoffs. So the strong union there decided what we're going to do is instead of taking massive layoffs, we're going to survey all of our workers. We're going to take account of all the technologies that we have access to, all the skills that we have access to, and we're going to say, what can we do instead with this technology? How can we repurpose these factories? And so what do they come up with? They come up with this thing called the Lucas Plan, which... I forget how big it was, but it's a massive, massive document. Numerous ideas about what they can do with this technology. So it was things like um, heating for socialized housing. It was things like renewable energy. It was things like medical equipment for people with disabilities. And it was basically an idea that we could take all this military technology, high-tech technology, um, and transform it into something which is socially useful. I mean, another kind of interesting example, possibly a bit uh, better known these days, is the whole kind of... Cybersyn experiment. So this was in uh, Allende's Chile, and it was basically uh, about how you could use technology, computer technology, to kind of install a kind of cybernetic democratic management system uh, that was going to run across the, the, the kind of the, the entire country and their factory system, and was going to enable a kind of progressive uh, transition towards kind of socialism or communism. And they, what was interesting, this ultimately was completely destroyed by, um, you know, the CIA. Um, literally by neoliberalism. Yeah, literally by, by by kind of one of the very earliest experiments in neoliberalism. This is the Pinochet government. This is course, Pinochet. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but the technology they were using was really out of date IBM computers, and they, but it was still possible to repurpose them. So I think it's always a question about the kind of socio technical. It's not just the technology; it's about the way we're able to <coughs> use it to reimagine how the social is going to work. We've got just one minute left. I mean, I wrote a piece for RB Open Democracy a little while back, and I said there are some big institutions in Britain we can repurpose them, re-engineer them for a different kind of capitalism arguably for a different mode of production altogether, not just in Britain, but globally, BBC, the NHS, but also the British Army, because it is the bedrock of, you know, this country's manufacturing base. If we were to have, in the words of Jeremy Corbyn, defence diversification, precisely the kinds of changes, I think, which are eminent within the Lucas plan, mm. we could talk about some really interesting things in relation to pharmaceuticals in terms of automating work for workers. Uh, you want to add to that, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, if, if you think about the kind of, if you, if you want to still have this spending, but you maybe don't want it to go towards kind of the ends of murdering people, uh, there's... Uh, huge amount of different ways that we could repurpose that 60, industrial base. $60 billion dollars a year so yeah. spent by the UK or something. On that note, Nick, Alex, thank you so much. The book is out now. Check it out. Verso will probably tweet it. So will I. This show will be up very soon. This is our FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.